Hi, I'm Jen White Johnson. I am an art activist, disabled designer, HBCU design professor. Mi nombre es Jennifer. Soy un activista, un profesora de uh, fotografía y design. And this is Tech Rap Queen. Royal Court, it's time. Let the gem dropping begin. Energy, vibes, inspiration. I'm Renee Reed, and this is Tech Rap Queen. love what this queen is doing in design education and design activism. So without further ado, I want to bring up the wonderful Jen White Johnson to the stage. Welcome to Tech Rap Queen. That's right. Yes. Hi, because it, it would be it would be a stage, right? Like, you know, post pre-pandemic, but this is we've been able to to make these beautiful audio sound waves through our computers, like our own stage. Mm. And I'm also manifesting that, yes. oh, oh yeah. who knows, one day. <laughs> yes, what is it, like Roman Roman Mars, like the 99% Invisible little couch session where it's just sort of kind of like the whole rap, and then you do the legit rap tutorial live on stage. Come on, like, you know. Hello. Yeah, you see it. it, okay, you see it. What other podcasts are you listening to or influence you? Yeah. And th- and first of all, thank you so much for, for holding space for me today. I'm a big fan of, of your podcast, actually, the interview that you did with, with Kai Frazier and curated by, by Kai. And of course, you know, Revision Path and Maurice Cherry and a holding room for, you know, just about like all of our friends, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and it's just so cool because, I mean, he he really continues to set that mark for you know black design voices and I feel like it's like a legit sign of respect when when you're on that podcast you know what I mean when you're when you're able to just kind of share your truths and plus you know so he's like our our black Larry King you know except alive R.I.P. Larry (laughs) King Uh, is very much alive he's still with us (laughs) he's like this common fixture I love that what a great reference So let's just jump into it. Jen, the designer, the activist, let's talk about what you're doing as a design educator in the space of HBCUs and how did you get there? Yeah, thank you for for asking. I've actually been teaching at um, Bowie State University, which is the oldest historically black college um, in Maryland. I've been teaching there for about 11 years, believe it or not, fresh out of grad school. And the the man who hired me to T.O. Melkeshua was actually one of my former professors when I was at a community college. And it's really cool because I I really enjoyed creating relationships and maintaining relationships with, with faculty that I respected. And you know, a lot of them inspired me to to go to grad school, to keep studying. They take you on as 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 a mentee and they encourage you to keep it moving. And then when I wrapped up grad school at at MICA, the Maryland Institute College of Art in, in Baltimore, I ran into him at, at an arts, beats and lyrics, like hip hop design festival. And he's like, you know, you you know, we need we need teachers, we need professors. You you gotta come back, you gotta teach. And 
And I felt so honored um, to be respected in that capacity. And I did like my TA stints in, in grad school. And I just really felt like, damn, like I enjoy being in service and being in dialogue with other you know, artists, young, old, and plus watching my mom and dad, they were both Sunday school teachers and watching them be in service to others, whether it was through, through church or through like the community, I always just felt like giving of yourself and being in that mindset of, you know, teaching others, being able to kind of help guide them on their journey was always this really strange intrinsic quality that that I felt like I wanted to have and nurture. And so I don't know, I, I felt like I just fell into it because I was given the opportunity. It's not like I had to break down and knock down all these doors to get back into the classroom after I left the classroom, which is, you know, which to me, that's what school is supposed to inspire you to do. If you're not going to be out as a designer working in the field, then come back and teach, you know, come back and like, you know, continue like what, what was already started within yourself, that learning journey. So yeah, I've been there for about 11 years and, you know, teaching graphic design, both traditional graphic design and intro, and then senior thesis, portfolio review, and then also some photojournalism. And that's just been so awesome seeing myself develop academically, like in, in that space as well. Uh, yeah, it's just been, it's been a lot of fun. Are you seeing a larger interest in design from younger Black creatives? Are you seeing it uh, taper off? What's kind of the interest that you're seeing in your space as an educator? Um, yeah, I think that what I, what I'm constantly encouraging my students to do is to, you know, find th their own voice, their own perspectives. And I always tell them, I'm like, you guys are the legit like storytellers like of our time. Like this is your cultural responsibility is to be honest about what you want to see told in advertising, you know, in 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 photojournalism, you know, like in 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 public relations, since there's like a huge communications um department at Bowie where we're constantly shaping and molding how the students like curate their stories when, when they're out there speaking in, 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 in any public platform. We've had students actually, you know, take on the role as podcast hosts and, and all these things through, you know, through the pandemic. They're continuing to be these amazing entrepreneurs and designing masks and things like that, you know, for, for their local communities. And it's just beautiful because we always encourage them. The time is now, like you don't have to wait to try to find that spark, like right as you're leaving, you know, the university. The time is now so that we can support you and amplify you. And the pandemic has actually been encouraging a lot of them to, to step into that role. Usually it takes them to, you know, leave school and then be like, okay, now, now it's time for me to get started. But we, we've had a lot of them, you know, show up in some really beautiful ways. Speaking of showing up in beautiful ways, I would love for you to share and talk about your zine. Um, so for those of you who are not familiar, zine is um, a self-published work or just a self-publication, um, something smaller than a magazine, um, but you know, very expressive, very creative. And your zine called Knox Rocks, named after your son Knox, um, is so popular, so powerful, and would love for you to talk about it. What was the inspiration and purpose behind uh, the zine? Yeah, I mean, it, it really came 
from me wanting to kind of just be really honest with myself about how, you know, Black and disabled people are depicted in, in media. And I would constantly have those conversations with my students and I'm like y'all gotta you know be out there you know activating like these 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 hidden narratives and these marginalized spaces like it's up to to, to y'all to tell these stories and I felt like I had this like internal struggle with myself like I wasn't really telling my own story like I wasn't really being completely authentic and mm. transparent with my with myself and I felt like I was investing so much into, you know, other people's lives and other people's experiences because that's just who I am. I'm a mom, like I'm a caretaker, I'm an auntie, you know, and I had already been teaching for about, I want to say maybe two or three years. And, you know, I got pregnant and my students watched me teach pregnant. I'm like, yo, what's up y'all? I'm good. I'm good. You know, and, you know, and I can do this. I can teach at like two schools and take the subway like at six months pregnant and be totally fine. And I didn't realize that I was dealing with like a lots of high blood pressure, still undiagnosed ADHD. I was, you know, I felt fine, but like my body was like so swollen. It's like all of these signs that women of color, like black Afro-Latina, we don't really take the time to just stop and focus because we're constantly on the grind. You know what I mean? It's like that hustle. We have to keep it moving. We have to buck up and we have to like show everyone that we got this. And I wasn't really taking time to really just like rest. You know, I was trying to to continue to grind it out. And my son was was born. He was two pounds. I was preeclamptic. It was emergency C-section. And I was only, I was 31 weeks, which, you know, for, for you, you know, for those that understand what a premature child is like at 31 weeks, like they're, they're small. They're like barely the size of, of a watermelon slice. You know, I mean, they're still growing and everything shifted everything changed and thus the the chapter of motherhood began and it wasn't no longer just like 60 black students it was this one tiny two pound child who is he's eight years old and he's amazing and he's also autistic he was diagnosed when he was two and a half and it's been a really enlightening overwhelming time understanding disability and what neurodiversity means like for us like as as black people and so the the zine really came from me documenting his experience as just a, a black autistic kid and 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 what that looks like for our family because when your child is first diagnosed as autistic you know instantly you know, we are taught to isolate ourselves and to get assistance so that they can, you know, become quote unquote, you know, normal so that they can actually learn how to assimilate and to comply with society's social norms, you know, whatever that means to people. But we're automatically taught that your child is broken and that your child needs to be fixed. And I, I constantly say this when I'm doing you know, talks and when I'm breaking down, like it's like a legit hindrance at times, you know, when your kid is, is diagnosed because instantly you're, you're taught that this is a shameful diagnosis, this is a shameful disability and your life will never be the same and your life will never be quote unquote as normal as you want it to be. And that that's really rough. That That's really hard as, as a parent 
to somewhat embrace that and and to to be told that and there's there's no sense of community that is encouraged for you to reach out to it's instantly like okay well what therapies what can we do to get your kid working properly and i was really tired uh and frustrated by all of those narratives that 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 i was constantly seeing consistently seeing and oftentimes you know when it comes to an autism diagnosis you know you usually see the standard you know white kid who's usually like a, a male like a, a a male boy that, that that's just can't you know that's constantly being documented that that's constantly being researched and at least that's what i saw in 2012 you know and i really had to to really take my time and to do the research to just say okay well what are communities of color saying? What are disabled communities of color saying? Because so far, parents of autistic kids, both black and white, is just seeing like the consistent narrative of so much heaviness and so much disrespect to to who their child is. And and so I I, I knew that I really wanted to to just artistically continue to just make stuff that honored the community period because I felt it was like a really just a really interesting time to to just practice that really interesting side of of myself with photography specifically like as, as a documentarian you know which is what I do and I felt like okay well now is the time to actually show people like this is what a neurodiverse family looks like what can we make for the community that's by the community that represents our community that will just tell like our own narrative because by in no means is Knox Rocks like a how-to guide like this is once your child is diagnosed as autistic this is what you need to do and this is there's no like go-to guide because that we didn't really feel that that was like our our place because there were plenty of other materials that were being written that were advocating acceptance for the community by by other autistic folks of, of, of color but i was like okay well how can we still tell our narrative our family narrative that is respectful and, and honorable and true of the um, autism community. And just, I mean, the book came out in 2018, published by my homies at Homie House Press. Check them out, they're amazing publishers and editors. And so with that book came out and and just the impact and the conversations that, that the book itself has been able to inspire and, and to uphold and uplift have taught, have continued to teach me so much about my own invisible disabilities, you know, with ADHD and chronic fatigue and all of these things that look differently in Black women, that look differently in communities of color, that 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 aren't always investigated or or honored or respected or understood, you know, within the community. And so you know, it's the book has really it's it's almost been like like a, a guide for me to continue to just amplify authenticity and and transparency when it comes to cognitive differences within the black community, within the Latina community. I think that that's really what it was meant to be. And and a lot of people are like, man, like it's it's almost like this. It's, it's it's helping to set the framework. It's it's like like a tool because Knox has even used the zine himself to like communicate with other autistic people from different walks of life. And and it's 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 allowed for us to kind of break down those doors and break down those barriers to assemble and to be in community with a lot of other black autistic people and and spaces. <laughs> You designed a very popular logo that is part of your design activism. And we are looking at a picture of your son in a shirt 
with the logo on the front and would love for you to share how you created the logo. What was the thought process behind it? People have the buttons, uh, t-shirts uh, of this logo because it's that powerful. And real quick, we're looking at a picture, but we there's going to be video of this podcast as well. But we're going to we're going to walk you through this. To give a quick image description for the the audience, what you see is a beautiful golden cinnamon skin autistic child. He is he was actually 7 years old when this photograph was taken in our backyard this past summer, you know, in within the pandemic. And we wanted to continue to create these really beautiful, happy, soulful moments that uplifted just disability culture, specifically from a black and brown lens. Oftentimes with disabled communities, you see very standard photos of disabled people, you know, whether they're wheelchair users or there's no standard experience as as a disabled person outside of of, of injustices that that so many disabled people face. But one of the things that is amplified so much through this image is joy is just happiness. And he's wearing a gold short sleeve shirt that has a black power fist on it and also a infinity symbol that represents neurodiversity and acceptance, specifically within the disability advocacy community. I mean, it means different things for different people, but oftentimes like the symbol that you will see that represents autism is, is a puzzle piece, which to me like represents a little bit of an issue for, for myself because oftentimes, you know, we see like this singular puzzle piece that still can't find its way and that's still lost. And and in order for this puzzle piece to be a, a part of society and to be a part of societal norms, it has to be a part of a larger puzzle where it fits and where it assimilates and where it complies. But with the, but with the infinity symbol, it's like this never ending circle of unity and 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 togetherness. And I just really love what the symbol has come to represent for me. And I hadn't, and I tell a lot of people this, like I hadn't really seen a lot of images or marks that represented disability and justice. There are tons of artists, you know, Sins Invalid, Crip Hop Nation, so many writers and, and authors and thinkers that use their bodies as these really beautiful instruments to help break down so many barriers. But I still felt like there wasn't like an actual symbol that really just nested in like disability justice and and in truth that was created by like a, a black person and then so underneath well well within the actual black power fist and the infinity neurodiversity symbol you see the words black disabled lives matter and that was really a, a hashtag that i first saw in 2017 as we were losing so many disabled you know bodies to to state violent state violence and you know, just police brutality and so many violent spaces, violent uh, narratives where disabled people were, were viewed as disposable and, and they still are. Just those words just really help. When you, when you have all of those words combined with the, the, with, with the symbols, it just helps to amplify power. And like we're really reclaiming um, our bodies and our minds. The power of this image, including your son, of course, he is definitely exuding some style <laughs> and I mean, some swag, yes. so not just joy, but uh -huh. definitely 
<laughs> being the stylish man that he, a little man that he is, and the power of imagery and, and the power of being able to tell yeah. that narrative. I love that. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And it's something that definitely needs to be seen more and needs to continue to be uplifted. And I know that there is a lot of hesitation with, you know, parents and how far is going too far when, when sharing your, your children online and, and social media and what does that mean? And is it, is it ex exploitative? Is it, is it respectful? I share my child, no, no one else's kids without their permission. And I post little disclaimers at times, especially if it's Knox, if he's dancing, if he's laughing, I'm like posted with permission by my eight-year-old autistic son or this message is coming from Knox. You know, he wants to say hello to everybody and it helps to really break barriers. I want to be a light to, to feed people with, with happiness and, and joy. So I try to do a lot of mix of like my own personal design work where there's no faces at all. It's just words. That's what the symbol was really about. That black disabled lives matter symbol was really kind of like my call to say, I can say something and I can say it with a mark. I can say it with a symbol that will that's meant to just embolden a community. So I think a part of the zine for me was really about, okay, well, just in case you need reminding of what a black autistic kid looks like and how they exist, like, here you go. And then even the cover of the zine that was chosen, that was taken by my editor at Homie House Press, Adriana, I love her so much. And I was like, I don't want to be on the cover of my first book. This isn't about me. I just wanted it to be Knox, like, you know, happy and joyful and she's like no like trust me the two of you together embracing each other is going to speak volumes and it's going to say a lot and and i mean years now i'm understanding like how important that representation is of a black and brown mom and her kid embracing on the cover of a book we often don't see that we may see like illustrations of it or we may see it like in a comic book here or there but never just legit like on a book cover you know what we do see after a disabled kid like Stefan Watts, for instance, like the 15 year old autistic kid who was murdered by, by police in a Chicago suburb in 2015, we'll see, you know, or Breonna Taylor. Like, I mean, we'll see like countless mothers that are holding a frame of their child no longer with them. And it's like, I got tired of seeing these mothers, Trayvon Martin's mom. And these are moments that are just consistently present and black people's minds. These are the images that we have that we consistently have to grow. Our parents grew up with seeing Emmett Till and grew up with, with with seeing, you know, Black Panther communities being snuffed out by the FBI and murdered and disposed. And now there's a consistent stream of, you know, black people that are completely being eradicated and erased by by state violence. And oftentimes there's that standard photo the mural of like all of these lives like being taken that are being honored after the fact and it's a really heavy space it's it's a very oppressive space and so the just the cover of the book represented so much of that relationship between here are two d disabled black people together embracing themselves and and love and it's it's unhinged it's not rehearsed it's it's completely unscripted and they're alive, like they're breathing, they're existing as their true authentic selves. This, this, this book wasn't written after the fact. This book wasn't written after he was murdered. 
you know, because God forbid that I even have to have that conversation with myself, but it is, it is a very true and real conversation. He's black and disabled and he's a man. He's only eight. So in a few years, he's going to be a teenager. He may be hanging out with friends. He may be taking a walk like Elijah McLean was to get, Mm -hmm. to, to get something to, to drink. And I mean, what were to happen if he were to be misunderstood? You have definitely shown and been a beam of light of what you can do when you find your voice and you use your voice and your craft. So I love the intersections of all the things that you're doing as a designer, as an activist, as a mom, as someone who has disabilities, as someone who has a child with disabilities. You have managed to take all that power and make it your own and not just your own, but empower others. Yeah, that that means a lot. And it's, it's an affirmation because, you know, as all designers and artists, like, like you said, like we're trying to hone our craft and we're really trying to, to uplift. And, and I said earlier, how is this artwork freeing people? How is it feeding people? And how are people feeling uplifted and, and amplified? And how is your work creating a sense of, of a bigger community that that's really what what it continues to to be for me i'm going to share a a spread specifically that is kind of like the manifesto behind the creation of the zine just my love letter to the black and brown autism and autistic communities so this this page says welcome to knoxverse where every family's experience is different but the commonality is that our children are not burdens and did not ask for any challenges they face. They depend on those who love them to equip them to be successful and to reinforce the fact that they are incredibly special and don't need to be fixed. They depend on those who love them to equip them to be successful and to reinforce the fact that they are incredibly special and don't need to be fixed. Gem drop. They are incredibly special and they do not need to be fixed. That last line alone. Whew. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's just the 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 label. I've I've had some people question, well, you're so comfortable using the word disability and and especially when it when when you're referencing your your child or your students or like <laughs> it's not a dirty word. Like mm-hmm. disability is not a dirty word, or you don't need to commodify it in, into anything otherwise, you know, because if we spend so much time asking for folks to to mask and to 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 normalize and and this this whole aspect of compliance culture we're really letting them know that they're just that there's something legit wrong with them and that they don't belong and it's like they've already spent the majority of their lives masking i've spent the majority of my life masking <laughs> i mean or you know or realizing that i had these little you know eccentric ways about myself but being like oh i have to tone it down I'm a little too much. Like I'm a little too much for for folks. You hear the term differently abled in place of disabled. I feel like indifferently abled is to me, it's I I feel like that's almost ableist because you're not necessarily honoring what the disability is or just calling it for what it is. So if you were a person in a wheelchair or if you were an autistic person, it's just like, well, that person's just different. 
it's like, well, just call me what I am. Like I'm a person living with ADHD or, you know, I have chronic fatigue. I just feel like with differently abled, you're really trying to kind of like just erase the fact that they are disabled and the fact that they are who they are. You're stripping away the humanity from their disability. We, we are still people. Like I still have a beating heart. I still have a soul. I, I operate in a, in, in a way that is very much me, you know, because what is quote unquote normal? And it, it just opens up like a huge discussion about what is normal, what is not normal. And of course we all know it's preconceived and it's, and it's oppressive and it's, it's the, the, the aspects of eugenics. Like we all know this was rooted in white men who helped to kind of define quote unquote, what you know, a normal body should be, what, how they should operate. And it was never really honoring to the black and brown community at all. It wasn't really honoring to people who, you know, walked differently or who expressed themselves differently or spoke differently. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just the whole discussion of just being honest and just being proud of being a disabled person and being able to say that without feeling like I ha like you have to, you know, say it as something else. I also want to amplify like this one space, affect the, ver the verb, affect the verb, and then also disabled in here. Like they're, they're like this one unit basically, and they're based in the Pacific Northwest. And what they do is they hire disabled visual thinkers and visual creatives. So whether it's photographers or illustrators, and they will actually document disabled people just being disabled, disabled people walking with canes, disabled people in wheelchairs, disabled people with fidgets, you know, that need stim based toys. And they're just kind of hanging out in a cafe, but they're all of color. So oftentimes the representation comes from the very standard narratives, the white man in a wheelchair or the white man sitting in an office in a wheelchair. But I'm like, yeah, but that can't all just be what being disabled is or or how we should see it or or the white autistic kid that is you know just happy and playing well where, where are you know just the 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 black and brown disabled people in in life just living and and existing and after my son was diagnosed i just wanted to to research and and be a part of the community and and understand the community and respect it, I, I was like, okay, well, what are, what are some of the spaces that are really like amplifying like the, the narratives? And, and of course, you know, my design friends were talking to me about like nappy.co and, and spaces and, and diversify photo and, and all of these places where you can see like, you know, images of black and brown folks within stock photo spaces. There's a lot of conversation about representation, you know, inclusive design, what should designers be thinking about uh, when we're talking about representation and, and inclusivity? How are you solving those, those issues and how are you addressing the problems for black and brown bodies that don't speak the way that you do, that don't look like you, that don't talk like you, that don't operate like you, that are wired completely different? How, what, what are all these d design conversations about? Like Liz, my girl, girl with the purple cane, Liz Jackson. Some of y'all, you know, maybe know about her. She tweeted the other day, I don't want to know your disability policy. I want to know what your disability practice is. How are you practicing amplifying disabled voices within your design spaces? Like, how are you designing with them, but not just for them or about them? And so that's really like what my role has been about. Like, what narratives? How am I building community that is right alongside like my disability community and not, I'm not designing 
you know, around them or, you know, like in front of them, but it's like, how are they actually a part of like the conversation? And, and for me, like before it even started with me partnering or collaborating with any other outside disabled spaces, like it had to begin in my own family. Like it had to begin within myself because that's how I can understand it more. And that's honestly where most of the, the true authentic stories and narratives will, will be. Like, it's not gonna be a superficial um, conversation when I'm talking about me and about my own you know, familiar space. Thank you for leaning in on the importance of designing with and co-designing, um, especially in product design, UX design. Mm-hmm. And I just want to underscore the importance of making sure that those people who represent those communities are alongside the designers and the decisions that are being made. What would you like to see more of in terms of companies engaging? HBCU design programs, graphic programs? Yeah, and that's a great question. So one of the things that we have been working hard on at Bowie is just making sure that our students are, are visible and we share a lot on social media, internship opportunities, and then also we share a lot of student work to let folks know, like, look, we're here, we're, we're around, like our students are, are ready and, and ripe. And it took me to speak at the Design Plus Diversity Conference that is head up by, by Tim and, and Antoinette. And that was the first time that I actually got a chance to, to speak at the, I think it was like their third conference that they had at Columbia College in Chicago. And Ayana, Ayana artist from Target came up to me afterwards and was like, I really love what you're what you're working on with your students and some of the art and the design work that you saw or that you showed, you know, can I give you my card? Because Target is currently ready to amplify HBCUs and we're we're ready to partner so that we can get like these young, vibrant, emerging designers, whether they're still in school or whether they're alumni or fresh out of the university, to come in and participate in these Black History Month design challenges and design spaces. And so that was one of my first times being able to see like a huge corporation actively go out and partner and say, we're we're not just going to Oh, ask you to send over like your black students or no, we're actually going to call the challenge like HBCU design challenge. So that was, <laughs> that was actually one of the first times that I had so big ups to target for, for that. So that's why I love when corporations or design spaces come to us to say, look, like we want for the students to be really authentic and what they want to share. And we're going to tailor this particular challenge around their design aesthetic and, and their belief system and it's really beautiful we have an entrepreneurship academy at at the the campus that a lot of the students are just gravitating towards because a lot of them don't want to be defined by like what corporations are asking from them a lot of them just want to build their own legit spaces and we've seen what happens when that fire i mean black vibe tribe mess in a bottle like those are some of my favorite black rooted in black some of my favorite design spaces that don't necessarily come from, you know, some, they weren't nurtured by like these big, huge corporations. They were nurtured by just like the story that like a black woman or black family wanted to say. And so I, 
I'm a fan. And then like animation studios, they did like Coraline and and a couple of other really, really beautifully stop motion based animations. We just launched a huge partnership with them to to have a stop motion animation space and, and lab within our campus. We'll see how it all goes like throughout this pandemic and COVID, but it's like huge spaces like that need to legit come into our spaces and say, this is what we want to do for you. You can't just say, oh, we need more black and brown students, but you're not creating an environment where they feel like they're ready to just jump into your your company that you're not even tailoring or that you're not even making accessible for, for just their way of being. Come um, on, say that yes. again. Oh, no, we're not going to skate over that. Hold yes. on. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah, what are you giving to the students and how are you, how are your spaces already embracing and telling our stories anyways? So that when the student comes into your space, they're just like, yes, like this space is open and free for me to just to just exist because I already know that I'm going to be nurtured. I'm going to be mentored. I'm not just the, like the token black person where you just need a black face. And so those are the, the, those are the conversations that I'm constantly having, but, but we all know that our students have their own aesthetic, their own design sensibilities. And I'm not making it up. Like these students design the way that they want to design. And I'm like, okay, I'll show them, you know, like very modern and simplistic in Bauhaus, but it's like, if they want to break that canon, and there are so many conversations happening with like so many black um, design people that I just love, uh, like Omari Souza, Jerome Harris, and um, Cheryl Leslie, Miller. Come Cheryl, on, Cheryl. Cheryl, come on, come on, OG, come on, Cheryl, and and Leslie, and so many, so many beautiful minds that that, that we both know that are constantly breaking the, the the barriers and challenging the the canon and wanting to kind of like just to deconstruct it completely. And, and all, you know, just like my people. And it's just like, and I feel like we spend so much time trying to like deconstruct that in the classroom, but then that's not what our students are seeing when they turn, when they turn on, you know, whatever. When they like, or when they're looking through the magazines, like it's not necessarily like reflecting, like everything is glitz and very commercial. And I have a hard time with that. Like, I can't even design that way. And I don't want to design that way. Um, and I tell my students that. And I'm like, look, if that's what you want to make, and if you just want to be bad and bougie, then it has to be like your own. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, then just do your own thing. Like, be the author of, like, your own framework. And, and they end up being amazing when they do it, so... Jen, I think you've highlighted something so perfectly that I want to capture that the college experience, academic experience is supposed to be a place of thinking, creativity, exploration, discovery. And what's interesting is that industry has created a box of standards that we're still trying to stuff people in. How can academia and industry work better together to help nurture that type of creativity, exploration, entrepreneurship that can be representative and show up in industry and not trying to stuff them into this box. No, I mean, it, it's, it, to me, it's a long going observation and conversation. And that's, and I struggle internally with that every day as an educator. I think that's one of my biggest hindrances sometimes as an educator, because I'm like, I encourage them, no, you need to like defy the system and you need to be radical and you need to like, you know, and, I'm, yes. and sometimes I'm like, I can't do that because <laughs> they're just not, 
some sometimes my students are not they're just that's not their thing they're like no man I want to make sneakers and I'm like okay well how is this sneaker gonna like embolden the community and like shout out big ups to like Makia Hughley Micah mm-hmm. graduate her whole senior thesis was like about you know redesigning beautiful like apparel when it comes to footwear how are you really changing the game with with what with what footwear can can mean and and, and how and how it can you know, I, I mean it, it's just sometimes it's just because it's being made by a black person is like enough and because it's being created and designed in a really beautiful way it's always for me because everything is so rooted in community, I cannot help it. It's really just about, okay, well, what are you doing to continue to just kind of shift the narrative a little bit and to kind of, you know, let people know, hey, I'm here. This is what I'm making. Buy from me, support me. Because that's just, you know, what it's about. And then if there is a much larger story that is attached to the apparel and to the the actual work itself, tell it, tell that story. Like we want to know because we want to honor that and we want to support it. Um, I feel like there were so many times in, in school where I was completely uncomfortable, undergrad and grad school. I was just like, man, but this is what I want to make. And people were saying, no, you cannot make this. You cannot do this. Who was, and then they were questioning who it was for, questioning, well, how was this, like, how is this work scholarly or how is this work going to, you know, not even necessarily change lives, but you could be doing this somewhere else. Not, not here, not, not for this project. I legit had people saying that in specific programs that, that I was in. And, and I, and I vowed to myself, I was like, I'm never going to do that to my students. If this is like legit what my student wants to carry and and what they want to design and what they want to develop, especially when the narrative is so strong. And yeah, maybe they just need like a little bit of guidance and they need help with understanding the bigger picture and how they can actually create like a solid deliverable, then that's my role is just to help facilitate that conversation, but not to say, no, you can't do it. Jen, you have blessed me, the Royal Court. You are a gem. You've dropped gems. Thank you so much for joining me on Tech Rap Queen. Shout out to you and this amazing space that, that you continue to build and create and the language that you speak in the folks that you have on, it means so much and it means a lot, especially now. I've, I've gravitated a lot towards podcasts and just stories and, and yeah, I just, I, I thank you and I, I honor you today. Like, keep it up. Keep up the good work. Everybody listen to Tech Rap Queen Renee. Keep listening. Keep listening. Keep it locked and save it on your, your Spotify. <laughs> Be sure to check out this week's show notes where you'll be able to see all of Jen White's social media handles where you can follow her, follow her work. Go to her website, jenwhitejohnson.com. Also, Royal Court, I am giving away three of Jen's postcard packs, power packs, I like to call them, of these incredible imageries of James Baldwin and Audre Lorde's words that she, words that Jen has created. And so I'm giving them away to three uh, wonderful, faithful, amazing Royal Court listeners, could be you. And how do you get this? How will you be able to win these packs? Um, just post a comment uh, on social media, so Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, um, and share, tag me, and let me know what you learned from this episode. What was your 
Uh, what was your gem drop? Something that you appreciated about this episode, something that Jen uh, shared. And I'm going to select three winners and send you these incredible um, packs, one pack per person, um, but three winners in total. And they're just really gorgeous. But go to her website, Jen, jenwhitejohnson.com so that you can see uh, the packs that I'm talking about. And maybe you can win one. As always, Royal Court, be well, stay blessed, peace. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Tech Rap Queen, be sure to visit therene.com. That's T H E E Renee.com. Also, follow me on Instagram at the underscore underscore Renee.